Good morning, and welcome to Upward Vision. We're glad you've chosen to join us this morning. Upward Vision is a ministry of Sherwood Oaks Christian Church with locations in Bloomington and Bedford, Indiana. Now for today's message. So we're going to be looking today at Acts chapter 5. Uh, if you have a Bible or a Bible app that you like to use, turn there with me, Acts chapter 5. If you are new to, to Scripture, uh, Acts is in the New Testament. We have the, the four stories of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then we get to Acts, which is the story of the, the creation of the church. So if you see in my Bible, it's about uh, three quarters, maybe a little bit more of the way through if you need help finding it. Acts chapter five, hang on to that. We'll get to our text here in just a little bit. Now, I wanna kind of start off with a little confession. Um, There are some passages in scripture that make me really uncomfortable. Uh, If I'm honest, there are some texts that I just don't like (laughs) very much. And that, you know, when it comes to preaching, there are texts that I really look forward and get amped up and, and I'm ready to preach, you know, in a moment's notice. And then there are texts like the one that we're going to be looking at today. That's a little bit more difficult. That's a little bit more challenging. And in fact, as, uh, as I was praying through and planning out this series through the book of Acts, uh, I kind of just wanted to skip right past this chapter. <laughs> but the Holy Spirit gently and graciously reminded me that I am not God's PR agent. Like, I don't have to worry about what this text might make God look like. I am not his PR agent. I am a preacher of his word. And if all scripture is God-breathed and it is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness so that the people of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work, if all scripture is useful then that means that our passage that we're gonna be looking at today, it is useful as well. And so we're going to dive right into it uh, to see what it has to say to us today. But first, let's uh, start off with a word of prayer. Uh, God, I pray uh, this morning that you will teach us. Yours will be the first and the only voice that we hear. Pray, Lord, that your spirit will guide me. Um, Make me sensitive to uh, what you wanna speak to our congregation. And that, Lord, at the end, uh, we will come away just following you more closely, more aware of your grace and the transformation that it is making in our lives and in this community. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to read the text in its entirety. It's a, it's a long section. Oftentimes, we kind of take a little chunk at a time and explain it. Uh, but I think this one is kind of best absorbed if we just read it all at once. And to get some some context here to uh, kind of round out the account, I'm actually going to start where Brad left off last week. So if you have your Bible or a Bible app open, just kind of back up a few verses. Uh, we're going to start in Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Here's what Luke says. It says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. 
Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And and after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price that you and Ananias got for the land? Yeah, she said, that, that's the price. And Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young man came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. All right, guys, have a great day. Thank God. It's gonna leave it there. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think that there's any text in the book of Acts, maybe even in the entire New Testament that confront us as followers of Jesus uh, more than this one, that's more difficult, that's more demanding of, of a response. Uh, the judgment in this passion, in this, in this passage, it seems so harsh, doesn't it? Especially coming from a guy like Peter. Remember, it's Peter who, who God works through to cast this judgment on Ananias and Sapphira. The same Peter that, I mean, we're talking like just barely weeks have passed by that, that this same guy was denying that he even knew Jesus three times when Jesus needed him most. And so you would think that, that Peter would be the one be like, hey, Ananias, I get it. You know, we all make mistakes. I was right there. But instead, there's just this, this judgment that's cast upon him that seems so harsh and non-redemptive and honestly so contrary to the gospel of grace that we find in, in Jesus. And yet here it is right there. You can't get around it. And so what do we do with it? What's going on here? I think our text, um, in the context of it, it gives us some clues. The end of chapter four paints this picture of incredible generosity in the early church that was in response to the generous gift of grace that they had received through Christ. And specifically, Luke mentions Barnabas, kind of holds him up as an example of this type of generosity. He says that the guy named Barnabas, he sold a field and gave all of the proceeds to the apostles, laid it at their feet so that they could take it and use it to help those who, who were in need. 
And this kind of sacrificial giving, it was cause for a great celebration, as you can imagine. I mean, Luke, it says that they were all of one heart and one mind. There was a celebration that would happen whenever someone would show this kind of generosity. I mean, much like what we continue to do today, there's, there's something that is very powerful that that type of generosity speaks. It speaks a unity that is amongst them, that everyone was willing to lay down their needs and their wants for the good of others. And they were doing it willingly and by their own free spirit in response to the grace that they had received. It was evidence of the unity that was forming in the body of Christ. And all was going well. In fact, we've even said and joked over the last couple of weeks that this kind of just seems like this perfect utopian society. All is going well until we get to Acts chapter five, verse one. In the English standard version, it translates it like this, but... And you can almost hear like a dun-dun-dun, you know, in the word but. It says, but a man named Ananias. And Ananias and his wife Sapphira, they notice the praise and the attention that people like Barnabas and others are receiving because of their generosity, and they decide to join in. And so they sell a piece of property, and together they talk about it, and they say, hey, um, we're going to hold back a portion of it, and we're going to give the rest of it um, to the apostles to distribute to those who had need. Now listen, don't miss this. If that were it, end of story. Ananias and Sapphira, they, they go into antiquity, kind of blended in with the, the, the you know, 120 in the church, those that maybe were added to the number on the day of Pentecost. They just kind of fade into history. We probably don't even know the names Ananias and Sapphira. Peter even says in verse four that the money was theirs. They were free to do whatever they wanted with it. They could have kept a portion of it and given the rest. They could have kept all of it for themselves. No one was making them give any of the proceeds from this land that they had sold. It was entirely up to them. The issue was not about their donation. It was about their deception. It wasn't about their donation. It was about their deception. They presented the gift as if it were the entire amount to win the esteem of those in the church. They saw the praise that Barnabas and others were receiving and they're like, we want in on that action, but we don't really wanna make the sacrifice. We just want others to think well of us. So they lied to their brothers and sisters in Christ, but more importantly, they lied as Peter says, to the Holy Spirit and to God. And in their sin of deception, they were not only impeding on the work of the Holy Spirit, they were actively playing defense against the unity that the Spirit was bringing and creating. And so we see a passage that we really don't see anywhere else in the New Testament. We see God act swiftly to guard the holiness of his people and to protect the unity of this growing community. He acts swiftly to guard the holiness of his people and protect the unity of this growing community. And so if this text is not about give all your money to God or else, <laughs> what is it about? What in the world does it have to say to us? Well, I am so glad that you asked those profound questions. Well done. <laughs> Here's what I think. I think to understand this passage, you need to understand it through the eyes of the original audience. And that's just good Bible study technique. Anytime you get into the scripture and you wanna understand what it means for you today, you have to first understand what it meant to them that first heard it. How would they have understood it? If we understand it any differently than how the original audience understood it, then we're not understanding it correctly. 
And so we have to understand this from what their perspective would have been, how, you know, what their takeaway would have been. And Luke makes it very clear what their takeaway was. In fact, he tells it to us twice, which is important. If you read something multiple times, it probably means that there's, there's some value to it. You wanna pay attention to it. And both in verse five and verse 11, Luke tells us what the point of this account is. And it says that great fear seized the people. This unique moment of divine judgment invoked a great sense of fear in the church, a great sense of awe and respect for the holy God that they serve. And here's what happens when you fear God. It does not mean that you walk around afraid of him, you know, just like like he's waiting for you to mess up so that he can, "Mm, gotcha. Like that's not what it means to to fear God. Scripture tells us that perfect love, God's perfect love casts out all fear. We do not need to be afraid of God, but we do need to fear him. We do need to understand that he is a holy, set apart, otherly God that demands and is worthy of our awe and admiration and respect in our lives To fear him means that we take him seriously in our lives and in our conduct. We're not flippant with his commands or with his call to holiness. It means that we live in the freedom of his grace, but we do not take advantage of his grace by continuing to live a life of sin. Fearing God also means that we no longer seek the approval and acceptance of others above our heavenly fathers. We no longer seek the approval and acceptance of others above our heavenly father. It's it's embracing his grace, knowing that without it, you could not stand before him. And something incredible happens when you begin to live like this. When you fear God and you embrace his grace, you will not settle for anything less in your life or in your relationships. You will not settle for anything less than radical authenticity. When you fear God and you embrace his grace, you will not settle for anything less than radical authenticity. When you begin to understand the holiness of God and the magnitude of your sin, when you know that the only reason why your life is different today is because of the work of grace in you, all of a sudden you no longer are trying to seek the approval of others. You don't puff yourself up so that others think more highly of you. You no longer hide in guilt and shame, hoping that people won't find out who you truly are because if they do, then they might not love you. Your life can can be lived with a sense of openness and authenticity because the one whose opinion matters most knows who you truly are. He already knows the depth of your sin and yet he loves you anyway. And he, he has proven his love. Paul tells us in Romans chapter five, he has proven his love in this, that while you were still dead in your sin, while you were still dead in your guilt and your shame and your transgressions, Christ died for you. He's already done the work to save you. He's already done the work to show you his love. And now he's just inviting you to live in the freedom of that and to not be anything more than what his spirit is transforming you into being. When you really begin to fear God and embrace his grace as the only leg that you have to stand on, you stop playing games. You stop pretending to be someone or something that you're not. You stop acting like you are better than anyone else or that your life is more put together. 
you stop being disingenuous with others and you start living in the freedom of radical authenticity. You're no longer seeking the approval of others because you have found all the approval that your soul can handle with your heavenly father who loves you and calls you as one of his child, children. But we struggle with this, don't we? Or is it just me? <laughs> we struggle with being authentic, with being open, maybe being honest about who we truly are. Instead of fearing the Lord and embracing his continuous work in us to, to transform us more into the image of Christ, we fear being f- truly and fully known. We fear being seen as a work in progress that's not there yet. And instead of letting the spirit do his sanctifying work in us, we, we put on a mask and not the mandated kind that you should all be wearing right now. <laughs> We hide and we cover up our rough spots in order to fit in with others and to gain their approval. We're we're afraid of what others might think of us if they truly knew us. And that fear causes us to be disingenuous and to hide behind a persona that we want others to see, which really is the exact same thing that we see in our text. It's, It's exactly what Ananias and Sapphira are doing. They are putting up this persona of generosity that they want others to see them as, and yet they are deceiving them. And you cannot, you cannot have true community if you are trying to lie to other people. You cannot be an authentic community with someone else if they are trying to lie to you. There is no place for deception in the unified community that the Spirit is forming within the church. And that exhibits itself in in all different ways. It's different for me, it's different for you, it's different for Ananias and Sapphira. It exhibits itself in multiple ways. But here's what I want you to hear today. And I hope that this is a freeing statement for you as much as it is for me. The church needs your radical authenticity more than your fake persona. The church needs your radical authenticity more than your fake persona. Because here's the thing, if you are pretending to be better and more together than you are, and I walk in here and man, I just feel like my life is a mess and I look around and I see all these people who are perfect, I start to think, man, I, I've got to be perfect if I want to come to Jesus. I've got to have my life together if I want to be a part of this church because clearly everyone in here has their lives together. No one's arguing in their car as they are coming in like, hey, we got to go worship now, settle down, you know? No one's doing that. Everyone's got their life and their act all together. So many people, maybe even you, you've walked into church, maybe even this morning and you felt that. And I want you to know you are amongst like-minded friends. (laughs) None of us do, even if there are times we pretend that we do. But when we are open about our need for grace that we have received in Christ, not, not just at one point in our life, but we are in daily need of his mercy and his grace, it helps other people see not just their need for grace, but their ability to find it as well. That that if Christ can save a sinner like me, he can save you too. That all of us need love and forgiveness that only Christ can provide and all of us can receive it. Uh, Now hear me, that does not mean that we just go around airing our dirty laundry all over the place. But it does mean that we stop pretending to be something more, someone more than what we are. 
We don't look down on others because of where they are in their spiritual journey. Nothing stops the work of the Holy Spirit to unify a group of people faster than, than for them to just pretend like they're already where the Spirit wants to take them. He'll, he'll just, okay, if, if, if you're good, I'm, he is patient and he is gentle that way. He only comes and does his work when we allow him to. It's only when we're honest about where we are in our spiritual journey that we can get to where he wants to take us and others will feel comfortable and safe to come alongside of us as well. But being disingenuous, it's not just pretending to be more than you are. For some people, it can also look like pretending to be more of a mess than you are. And, and there seems to be this uh, a trend, especially on, on social media, for people to find a sense of um, community by talking about how much of a mess their life is, how difficult it is. And like, listen, we have two girls, age seven and eight, we get what a messy life looks like right now. We're, we're kind of living in that. And many of you are as well. But I think that there's a lot of people and even Christ followers who maybe show a life that is messier than what it is in order, same desire, in order to gain the acceptance and the approval of someone else. And and if you're a follower of Jesus and, and, you're, and you find yourself doing that right now, I just wanna, I wanna challenge you that, that the world needs to see the fruit of the spirit growing in you just as much as they need to see your authenticity. The, the world wants to, to see that fruit and, and, and as they do, then that becomes something that they begin to hunger for. They need to see the spirit working and growing in you a life of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control. And so let them see that fruit that the spirit is growing in you. Just make sure that it's the real kind and not that fake stuff that people set out to make it look good. (laughs) Really, it it comes down to this. And I think that this is the the heart of the story that we looked at today and why this is still so important for us. If, If Satan can't destroy the church by outside force, and listen, he can't. Jesus has already made that proclamation over the church that the gates of hell cannot defeat, cannot stand against the church. And so if Satan cannot destroy the church by outside force, he will try to destroy it by internal falsehood. And nothing stops the unifying work of the Holy Spirit in a church. And nothing makes an outside world look at the church and go, man, y'all are a bunch of hypocrites than just pretending to be something that we are not. Being deceptive. And that deception is fueled by this fear of others and what they might think of us rather than a fear of God and embracing his grace. And so being disingenuous can come out in multiple ways, but the end goal is always the same. It always comes down to seeking the approval and the acceptance of others rather than God. Fearing the opinions of others instead of fearing the Lord. And the only way to fight against this type of disingenuous behavior is to counter it with radical authenticity. When you're authentic with others, it shows that you trust the Lord in the redeeming work of grace that he is doing in your life. Authenticity brings about and protects the unity of the spirit and it pulls us all together as we are on this journey towards Christ-likeness. And so how do we do this? 
I've talked about my covenant group in here before, a group of pastors that I meet together with um, regularly uh, for the purpose of soul care. And, and one of the tools that, that we have used is called um, the concentric circles of authenticity. You're, you're familiar with concentric circles. They start wide and then they just kind of hone in and hone in and hone in. And, and with the concentric circles of authenticity, that outer ring, that outer ring says that we all, each, each one of us, we need to be honest with everyone. Each one of us should strive in our life to be honest with everyone, to live an honest, upright life with everyone that we meet. That we don't try to cheat people. We don't lie to them. We don't try to deceive them in some way. Each of us should strive to live an honest life with everyone. And then, and then you, you kind of go into that next inner circle. And that one says that we need to be transparent with some. We need to have some people in our life that we feel comfortable to be transparent with. So we strive to be honest with everyone, but we are transparent with some. And these are the people that you let just a little bit deeper into your life. They're the ones that you feel safe around. They're the ones that maybe you reveal a little bit more of your life or your relationships, your, your struggles, maybe even your joys with. When something happens in life that, that is hard, that is difficult, or maybe that you wanna celebrate, oftentimes uh, these are the ones that you wanna call first because you know that they're gonna celebrate with you because they love you and they care for you. And then that inner circle says that each of us, we need to be vulnerable with a few. Honest with everyone, transparent with some, vulnerable with a few. And I think that this is when the work of authenticity really begins to happen. That as we are vulnerable with a few, we, we learn to be comfortable with being honest with everyone and transparent with some. These are the people that you are letting into the deepest part of your life. They, they know what hurts you and who has hurt you. These are the ones that know the darkest sins that you continue to struggle with. And instead of justifying it or minimizing it and say, oh, hey, it's okay, you know, we all struggle with something. They, they hold you accountable to it and they help you. They make you want to become more like Jesus. And so as we close this morning, I just invite you to take a little inventory into your circles of authenticity. Are you able to say that you are honest with everyone you meet? Or do you pretend to be someone that you're not because you're afraid of what others might think? Is there a specific person that you are lying to right now because you're not sure that if they knew the truth, they would still love you and it, and it makes you afraid? Is there someone that you're trying to impress by stretching the truth just a little bit? Do you use people and take advantage of them for your own gain, telling them what they want to hear so that you look good in their eyes or to get the sale or close the deal? Are you honest with everyone? Are there some people in your life that you can be transparent around, that feel safe for you, that you've let into that next layer of of your relationships, that they know your pains, they know your struggles, they know your joys. And these could be people in your life group or your Bible study, maybe someone that you work with. Do you have some people in your life with whom you can be transparent? And do you have anyone in your life that you can be vulnerable around? Someone who knows you fully and loves you just the same, someone who's carrying your burdens with you and helping you become more like Jesus.
Tim Keller writes something that I think is, is fitting for us as we close out this morning. He says, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. You know, to, to pretend like you're someone and like people love the, the person that you put out there, that, that persona that you're putting out there and people love that person, but they don't really know the true you. It's comfortable, but it's superficial. To be known and not loved, that's our greatest fear, isn't it? That's the thing that keeps us from being vulnerable. It's the thing that makes us kind of do what Ananias and Sapphira did and try to deceive people. To be known and not loved, that's our greatest fear. To be fully known and truly loved is a lot like being loved by God. It is so freeing when you come to believe that God knows you fully and he loves you abundantly. It doesn't matter where you have been. It does not matter what you have done. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. All of us are in a constant need of forgiveness. All of us are in daily need of grace. And Jesus provides exactly what we need when he went to the cross and he died for our sin. And by the power of the resurrection, we can have a new life and we can have a fresh start. Do you need that today? Man, I know I do. One of my favorite promises in all of scripture says that God's mercies are new every morning. Man, I claim that promise every morning. Every time my feet hit the floor, God, thank you that your mercies are new for me today because I need it. And if you're here and you've never crossed that line of faith, if you've never taken that first step and confessed Jesus as your Lord, identified with him in the baptismal waters, man, today can be the day that you take that step that you find the grace and the freedom that he has made available to you and you begin to live this radically authentic life in this community of believers that's gonna surround you and love you. This has been Upward Vision, a ministry of Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. With locations on the east and west sides of Bloomington and in Bedford, Sherwood Oaks has a worship service to meet your needs. To receive a free copy of today's message or for more information about any of our locations and service times, go to socc.org messages. Thanks for joining us. Continue to look to God this week as you maintain the upward vision.